certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Coronavirus has led to confusion at the Claremont serial killings trial, with some members of the public not being allowed inside, sparking a very stern warning from Justice Hall. Hello, good to have your company for day 62 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark, and criminal defence lawyer Damien Cripps with you today. Uh, Tim, this drama unfolded at the end of court today. Can you talk us through what happened? Yeah, Nat. So this this was nothing to do with uh, evidence, although... Uh, Justice Hall did ask for explanations. Um, so what happened was at the end of the, um, the day's proceedings, um, there had obviously been some uh, Chinese whispers gone through the court and Justice Hall basically called uh, a very regular security guard who's been doing security and detail in the courtroom for most of the days of the trial, called her up and asked her what she'd been told with regards to letting people into the court. Now, as we've explained this week, Justice Hall has been very, very keen to try and keep the court as open as he possibly could. Um, it even went so far as today him uh, supplying his own hand sanitizer to everyone in court, small bottles, although they were, they were still there, um, and that was his own personal supply. Um, so he's been very keen to try and do everything he can. But then this uh, security guard was asked what her directive had been from um, the, the, the higher-ups, and she, quite frankly, told him that she'd been told that um, members of the public um, were not to be allowed in on her instruction. And this um, prompted a quite um, very stern rebuke from Justice Hall, who then called her superior up to court to explain himself. Um, and then he basically issued a directive to say that no one is excluded from this court other than my order um, and said that anyone going against that order could face a contempt of court um, uh, sanction themselves. So it was, it, it's, it's, we talked about it. It's obvious that, that we are in unique times. And this again was another unique um, set of circumstances. But again, Justice Hall was very, very stern in his um, ruling that the court is to remain o as open as it can and as many people as is safely allowed into court if they want to be there can be there. Did you know um, in the media, did you realise at the time that people were being excluded and, and do you know who was excluded? Um, well, I, I was in court this, this morning and this afternoon, Matt. Um, I've got to say it's the thinnest the crowd has been um, for the entire um, story and history of this case. Um, at one point, I was the only media representative in court, which wow. is the first time that's happened. Um, there were a couple of um, observers in court this morning, uh, younger members um, of, of, the, of the community, um, but they hadn't returned this afternoon. I wasn't aware that they actually had been told that they couldn't come in um, because people do come and go. But that was confirmed by the, the, the security personnel that that what was what had happened. So um, it was it was unfortunate that, that it seems to have been a, a bit of a miscommunication. But speaking to that security guard after, um, there does appear to have been some very high-level meetings amongst 
um, you know, the, the, the very senior um, jurists in, in Perth and Western Australia this afternoon. And my understanding is there might be a directive from the Chief Justice or, or, or someone of that level to say that it might be that, that members of the public who are not directly involved in the case might be excluded from courtrooms in Perth um, very soon. I, I, we haven't had that. Um, official notification yet but that that is the information that I've been given it, that it might be coming yet yeah right I mean it is such a moving feast right now and you know right now in Australia the Prime Minister has imposed really strict rules for gatherings you know at a wedding you can only have five people at a funeral only ten people so it, it must be very difficult to keep up with how fast it's changing uh, Damien are you sort of just scratching your head and thinking how are they making this happen in, in, relate, in relation to what's happening in the Claremont trial, Nat, I am bewildered at how it's kept going. I, I certainly understand um, Justice Hall's desire for the matter to keep going. I think anyone who was in a position where they'd gotten a trial to the point where this trial has gotten to, you would be loath to have it stop. Um, but... Unfortunately, what I've found through my travels of the courts in the last week is that it's not about any one person's single desire to resist what's going on. It's about the community as a mass saying, in fact, what we want everyone to do is isolate and stay home. So um, all the while, I certainly understand that um, the trial, especially this trial, um, the, the preference for, the, for Justice Hall is for it to keep going. It may simply be the case that even at his height in the judicial system, that he can't actually overcome what the community as a mass is trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, that's certainly the feeling that I've had as a, a lawyer um, traversing the courts in the last week is that um, I've, I've seen magistrates trying to implement measures where they only let... Um, one accused and and their party into the court at the time, that being the defence lawyer and the accused, um, and that that's simply a magistrate's directive where they've said, this is my court and this is how I'm going to operate it. We're only going to deal with one party at a time. When your matter's called, you'll be brought into the court and you can bring your defence lawyer in and we'll hear that matter. When that matter's finished, you'll leave and the next party will come in. So it's certainly a, a, an environment where everybody's trying to protect themselves, you know, to the best that they can. And unfortunately, as I'm sure everyone is discussing Australia-wide and in and around this matter, it's just not a, not a case where we know what tomorrow is going to bring. That's right. So it has to be a case where you say, uh, in Justice Hall's um, circumstances, uh, kudos to him for doing everything within his power to keep it moving along, but it just might be the case that he, he, he can't... Uh, I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone does. Yeah, I mean, it is it is so confusing. And I guess, you know, each night, sometimes late at night, we're getting an address by the Prime Minister. And I don't know about you, but I haven't heard anything specific to courts in those addresses. Well, we have had some conversations uh, throughout the profession. Um, and one of the things that was mentioned to me today is that, which I found quite interesting, was that the court is an essential service. And I was really interested in that proposition um, because what essentially what that means is 
anybody who's an officer of the court, i.e. lawyer, police prosecutor, uh, Department of um, Director of Public Prosecutions, Representative Prosecutor, uh, the, the court orderlies, all of the people that are involved in uh, the court are part of an essential service. But I'm not yet convinced that the court is an essential service in the terms that we're using essential service at the moment. Mm. And the thing, the other thing is, it would appear across Australia, individual courts in individual states have been left to come up with their individual programs uh, in terms of how they deal with um, COVID-19 and and the the, the strict um, distancing and cleanliness measures that are um, are, are being you know society-wide implemented, um, but there hasn't been any overall directive sort of but so the high from the high court down to the lowliest magistrates court or basically having to deal with it by themselves on the run it seems and that's what justice hall has been trying to do because as damien says each individual courtroom is is a is a law unto itself if you pardon the pun but then the restrictions appear to be getting incrementally sort of stricter um certainly the district court in western australia today for instance has, has now ruled just today that in sentencing hearings um uh, the accused person doesn't have to come to court anymore they are now allowed to be done by video link which is that's never happened before um so as i say my information is that i think in the next couple of days there might be a ruling um that the public as a mass, are not allowed to attend mm. court, which that would have never happened before, I'm sure. And whether it goes beyond that and they say, well, we just, for, at this point in time, we just cannot afford to have that number of people in court at any one time, um, then we'll just, we'll just have to wait and see. That's right. Well, yeah, I guess... Sorry, sorry, Nat. One of one of the things, Tim, that you have raised in this podcast um, previously, which every day that goes by gets more and more prevalent, um, and especially in relation to the Claremont trial, is um, if you if you think of the concept of social distancing and self isolating, and all the reasons that has been discussed over and over again about why this has to happen. One of the issues that would stand at the forefront, I think, of um, the, the the systems. Um, mind, if I could put it collectively like that, is that every day, and Tim has raised this before, Mr Edwards is commuting from um, a a correctional facility that houses thousands of people, not thousands, Mm -hmm. probably up to a thousand people, and potentially him travelling in that vehicle into the court and travelling up through the court system and and, and then being exposed to, let's say, 15 people that are in the court and then put back into the housing facility and travelled back out to um, the remand centre, wherever it is that he's being held, exposes all of those people in the remand centre to what he's being exposed to by bringing him out. I mean, the problems, the list of problems that we face by this progressing, continuing on, uh, it just grows by the day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess for now, Claremont is going ahead, albeit maybe with some uh, scaled back measures of as of tomorrow. So, Tim, uh, you mentioned in yesterday's podcast, Victor Webb would be mm. taking the stand today. That happened. What was his role in the investigation? So, uh, Mr. Webb was a sergeant, uh, a forensic sergeant, and his, he, 
there were several roles he had. He was a crime scene unit expert. He was also the officer in charge of a physical um, examination lab. Um, and he was also then seconded onto the macro task force to uh, bring his skills to that investigation. So he, he wore um, a, a few hats, if I can put it that way. Uh, and today, most of his evidence um, uh, circled around his role in taking and picking up and bringing back um, exhibits, particularly um, overseas and interstate um, as they related to macro. Um, so the first portion of his evidence was around his travel to the United States in 1999 to liaise with the FBI over there and bringing their expertise into the uh, into the investigation. And then later on, he was also involved in liaising with the Australian Federal Police um, over in Canberra. Um, and where they were also um, uh, seconded into the investigation to try and bring their particular expertise with regards to fibres and hair. So that was uh, that, that was Vic Webb's particular um, uh, interest and, and uh, involvement in the case. Um, and it was and it was quite illuminatory, actually, what he had to say, because we hadn't really heard any of the detail about the FBI involvement um, uh, until today. So what were some of the exhibits? You obviously got a better idea and, and more detail about exactly what he took. Well, they were um, many and varied, Nat. Uh, so this is in 1999. So by this time, obviously, all three, the macro investigation had been going um, many years, at least two years um, since Kira's uh, discovery. Um, and we also know by then that Lance Williams, the public servant, um, was, was well in the frame in terms of um, the police suspecting him. So in, in 99, by this time, Mr. Williams had been um, surveilled, he'd been arrested, he'd been interviewed extensively, and he'd had um, numerous physical samples taken from him and physical exhibits taken from his house. And then also, obviously, there's a huge amount of physical exhibits in terms of the crime scenes and the bodies of Kira and Jane. So what um, Mr. Webb revealed today was that in, in 99, it was his job to take these exhibits um, or, or a, a sample of these exhibits to Washington via Los Angeles and Sydney um, and then work out with the FBI um, what they were to do with them. Um, so the, the main ones we are interested in in terms of fibres, um, so Kira's hair, um, her hair mask that was taken during her post-mortem and her T-shirt in particular, um, they were the, the, the two pieces of evidence that really did um, glean some breakthroughs via the FBI in, uh, in, in some way. And then, as I say, the, the, the involvement of the, the Williams link, um, we learned today that there were numerous physical exhibits taken from Mr. Williams and his parents, actually. So there were hairs, there were fibres, there were some knives that were taken from Mr. Williams' um, house. Um, there were some uh, what they called uh, vacuum uh, pieces of evidence that had been taken from his car, his house and his parents' house, and then hair samples and DNA samples. So they all went to America as well for, obviously, comparative um, purposes because the police were hoping that the FBI with their advanced technology as it was at the time may be able to provide 
that link that the police um, thought they would that, that was it was only a matter of time that they would get. But as we know now, there was no link there. Um, but what they did find was some of these fibres that now provide the link um, allegedly to Mr. Edwards. I mean, you have to wonder, you're talking about 1999 and they take all these fibres from Lance Williams' home and car and parents' house, uh, Mm. find no link, but it doesn't stop them pursuing the path of looking at him as a suspect. Well, no. I mean, that did did not end, as we know now, until 2008, late 2008, when we got that DNA breakthrough. Um, So uh, despite them not being able to to make this match with a hair or a fibre or a carpet fibre from the house or from his car, um, they still pursued that line of inquiry very, very vigorously for, for many, many years afterwards. What was also interesting, Matt, was some of the names that we heard um, in relation to where and um, who from the FBI the, um, the WA police were, were talking to. Um, there were various agents, but the one that, that did um, stick out to me was a chap called uh, Wayne Lord. He's a doctor. And now he was the head of the FBI's serial murder unit at the time. So you can imagine um, the, the experience and, and vast resources that, uh, that Dr. Lord would have had behind him. Um, but he also had a, an expertise in, uh, in entomology um, or the study of insects around um, uh, corpses and bodies and dump scenes and, and, the, and that type of thing and um, we know from previous evidence that there was there were many examples of those on uh, both James crime scene and Kira's crime scene and um, so Mr. Lord um, with his name um, was given the moniker or the oh. nickname within the FBI as uh, Lord of the Flies because that's that's what a portion of his expertise were, were. and, it, and it, was, it, it was that brain that uh, the WA police wanted to pick um, as part of their um, as a part of their hookup with the FBI um, in, from 1999, and which went on for for a couple of years. I don't know about you, Damien, but it still um, you know blows my mind at just how far the tentacles of this investigation reached. They certainly went to great lengths, and I when I'm listening to Tim explain that um, as he was just then, I, I my mind turns to that. It is really, really a great environment that um, nations can share their resources. You know, like if, you know, we're in a situation here where, um, you know, we're trying to get to the bottom of uh, a series of crimes that have taken place. Our um, our resources here are working towards an answer and they've got the ability to reach out to someone on the other side of the planet who has access, if you think about it, in, this, in these terms, access to the whole American budget or the, the, the budget of the United States uh, FBI and their wealth of experience and their wealth of technology that they've got. It's a really fantastic thing and, and, and it should sort of, especially in this day and age, make, I would have hoped, anybody thinking of, um, you know, erring on the side of or the wrong side of the law, that th- this is what's available to the police and investigators these days or has been for some time. It's, it's quite um, mind-blowing. Yeah, definitely. So Victor Webb was in charge of all the physical evidence um, in this case. When uh, the FBI have done their thing and they send the exhibits back to to Perth, what happens with them then? Does, does Mr Webb still take carriage of them and what does he do with them at this point? 
Yeah, so that so that was what we were going through today. Now um, the continuity of this evidence. So who took it? Uh, who took it over? The FBI. How long it was there? And then when? How how did it come back? And what happened to it when it came back? So interestingly, um, Mr. Webb said to take it, he went out, bought two regulation suitcases, and placed um, the evidence in those sealed in in bags i've got i've got to stress that not just uh, not just packed like you would for a uh, holiday um and as as an aside to that one of the suitcases contained all the claremont exhibits and for the first time today we found out that the jared ross inquiry um which we referenced a few weeks ago um operation ambrose as it was known then was uh, exhibits from that were in that second suitcase so that will be of interest to people following that case that the fbi even in 99 were also being leaned upon to try and help find the killer of uh, of little jared who was who was who was only 11 when he was murdered um then they went over they stayed there for a couple of years actually and then in 2001 they were um sent back probably a little bit um more regulation um by FedEx, um, a couple of cardboard boxes sealed um, and tabulated and labels um, were sent back um, uh, Fed Express um, over ac- across the world and were received back into the WA Police Headquarters. And it was Mr. Webb who took carriage of them then, um, ticked them all off to find out what was in the boxes, and then he restored them. Um, in various locations, secure locations um, in, in the, in, within the police hierarchy in, in, in WA. And then also, um, as we mentioned yesterday, there were various subsamples that had been made in Washington um, for investigative purposes, and he was the, the officer who was tasked with the job of, of, of logging all those, working out which subsample came from which ex, uh, exhibit, um, in particular, Kira's hair, um, and then he sent those samples or some of them off to various labs around Perth, the Chem Centre, Pathwest, and the University of Western Australia for further um, examination and testing. Um, so, the as Damien said, the the, the lengths, the breadth, the expense, and the the thoroughness of, of the investigation um, that that it was macro was again. Um, starkly illustrated today um by 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 everything that they were they were trying to do tim just in relation to that point um that we were discussing there and and for the purpose um of the discussion about continuity um Mm. could you perhaps um elaborate a little bit for the listeners how did the court deal with the 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 issue of potentially the, the american um experts not being in court to give evidence about that continuity Mm. well th- i mean that that is one of the burning questions now because we were anticipating getting these or hearing from some of these fbi agents um in particular to find out exactly what happened to that evidence while it was in america for all that time um now whether we were going to get those um agents in person or via video link that that was Still a little bit up in the air, but now it's completely up in the air um, because we don't know whether we'll be able to hear from them physically at all. So that that's an issue that that um, both sides are obviously grappling with. Um, and as as all our listeners will, will now be well be aware, you can only give evidence 
about things that you were absolutely personally involved in. You can't postulate, you can't guess what might have happened to that evidence when it was in America. You can only talk to what you did with it. And so that's what Vic Webb did today. He, he had made notes very detailed notes actually of his, of his travel, when he arrived, what time he logged it. There were FBI um, documentation to show when it was logged and, and, and in, in what part of Quantico in Washington it was logged at. So that's as far as we can get today. Now, obviously, we think that the, the prosecution is going to have to go further than that because that is a huge time gap of two years when, it, as far as we know today, anything could have happened to those exhibits while they were there. Um, you would hope that the FBI, with all their expertise, would know what they were doing. But the judge is going to need and want to hear um, about that, that gap um, in that timeline and what exactly was done to the particularly the hair samples um, from Kira, which are said to have these critical uh, critical fibres on them. Tim, did, yes. Vic, did sorry, Tim, did Vic Webb open these samples himself? Well, there were some Matt, that we heard today that he did open when they got back from um, the FBI. There were these um, petri dishes or, or pill boxes, as they were referred to in in the United States, that did have some of these hairs in them, um, and particularly some of the subsamples taken from Kira's hair. And what we did hear today was, yes, he did actually open some and remove some of those hairs from those subsamples and made other samples himself. Now we didn't really get to why he did that today. Um, there is there's still about uh, some. Um, some part of his evidence to go tomorrow, particularly the cross-examination. And I'm sure he'll be asked about that because that could be that could become quite quite critical as to why he did that and, and certainly how he did that and in what type of environment um, he did that. Um, and what I, I have to, I have to say, we, we tried to run through the uh, the alphabet soup like yesterday of all the different um, uh, evidentiary labelling that was done, and, and we really did get into uh, lots of letters and numbers today because there were a, a whole raft of different labels um, put on different um, exhibits, and it did get quite confusing today, I've got to say. Um, but we, we we promised the listeners yesterday we will boil it down to what the, the actual exhibits are rather than what they were called. Um, and they all all of those revolve around Kira's hair, which is is by far the the, the biggest um, uh, holder or, or, or evidentiary mass of where these fibres came from. There are over forty of these critical fibres that are said to come from the various um, samples and subsamples of Kira's hair. We need to get ourselves a spread board like you have created uh, in the media room at court there so that we can all follow the, the um, evidence clearly. Um, we've had quite a few questions along the same lines, which might be something you could chat to us about, Damien. This one's from Karina. I'm wondering with all these changes that are being made and with the two teams being able to agree on statements that can be read in and therefore removing the chance to cross-examine, once we get through all this COVID time, will this allow, allow grounds legally for either team to call for a mistrial due to those changes to normal protocol should a verdict not go their way? Oh, it's a good question um, because as we've experienced, as everyone's used to hearing now, not just in relation to this matter but in relation to everything, we're uncertain about what tomorrow brings. But my, what my mind turns to is that this, when you are, are considering 
what we call conceding a statement. Um, as the, uh, the person who asked the question has correctly put, you are, if you concede a statement, essentially you're saying to the court, we, we accept that that statement can go in in the, in the form that it's in and it becomes part of the evidence that the judge or the jury can consider without the opportunity of testing that evidence. We call it testing, which essentially means cross-examining the person um, about what their evidence is. So um, the way my mind would approach that question is that when that possibility was raised, and I would have thought that it would have been something that would have been at the forefront of both teams' minds early on in the piece, because it, was, it saves time. If there's something that nobody's disputing and there's no issue with, then... You, it's easier for everybody. The statement's read in and then you can move right along. But the way that that must um, progress is that both legal represent, representatives for each party must consider whether that can be read in. So if it was the case that, say, for instance, the defence, um, given the circumstances, opted to uh, agree that a statement could be read in, I, I would have thought that would be very difficult then to turn around at a later date and say, well, we're now seeking a mistrial on the basis that statement wasn't tested because the obligation on a legal representative is to consider what the implications of that statement being read in. So given that Mr Edwards is... I'm talking about it in the terms of the Claremont case. Given that Mr Edwards is represented and uh, um, by very capable counsel, it would be difficult to argue at a later date that he didn't have good advice about what the implications of a statement being read in were, and that if he had agreed to it, that that was his decision under good advice, and it'd be very difficult to go back on it, even given the COVID-19 situation. Yeah, right. So you kind of, you've agreed to the terms and conditions and... Um and, you know, moving forward from there. A few of you have also asked about the audio recordings which you've been unable to find on the District Court uh, website. Tim, is are they working through that still? Yes, um, slowly, Nat. So that was, that was addressed this morning. Um, because of the amount of suppressed witnesses in the trial, um, in particular... Oh, I've got to say it refers to the, the victim of the uh, the rape at Karakata. When the name of that person is being referenced in court, um, that name then has to be deleted, manually deleted from that audio recording. And I've got to say for the last couple of days, that name has been uh, mentioned quite a few times. And what Justice Hall explained this morning was the physical um, uh, task of going through the audio transcript and taking that out takes a long time. So what, what he's actually requested of both, both um, sets of lawyers today is that from now on they use um, initials or pseudonyms for any suppressed witness, which would um, negate the need for that name to actually be physically um, deleted. So um, it isn't that uh, the court has just neglected its duty, it's actually trying to work through it. And as I've said, this is the first time this has ever been done. So this is completely new ground for all those um, boffins at the, in, at the, in the back rooms of the Supreme Court trying to sort it out. It is coming. I would not be surprised if it wasn't. I would be surprised if it wasn't there by the end of this week, um, because it is a promise that uh, Justice Hall has made in public. Um, um, and I'd be, uh, I'd 
be very loath to think that he would want to go back on that promise. So, so yeah, it, it is coming, um, and it, it should be there, or they should be there by by the end of this week, I would think. Just a matter of getting through the physical logistics of doing that. Do you know what's happening tomorrow, Tim? Uh, yeah, so it'll be a, a, an early start and an early finish tomorrow, and that. So, um, uh, Mr. Webb, Vic Webb, will be back on the stand tomorrow to be um, to be cross-examined by Mr. Jovic, and that should not take more than an hour or so. Mr. Jovic said. Um, so that and that's that would we think will be the end of the evidence um, for this week, um, and then both sides will go away and um, and work out what's uh, what's to come, um, as uh, as most of the world is doing at the moment, <laughs> waking up in the morning to see uh, to see what the day brings. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, we'll be back tomorrow, everyone, but um, not sure what will happen thereafter. But we will definitely. Uh, let you know as soon as any information comes to hand, uh, whether that be in a bonus episode, um, even if we need to update you with those daily changes. Thank you both for your time today and thank you for joining us. We hope you can join us tomorrow for day 63 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. For a fresh take on the news that matters, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live, with Jenna Clark at thewest.com.au. The West Live not only delivers on what the day's big news stories mean for WA with hard-hitting interviews and analysis, but it will also make you smile with light-hearted chats and local gossip. The West Live, like talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.